They're doing their job. They're qualified to do what they're going to do. They are in place and serving in difficult and dangerous capacity, both here and deployed across the uh, uh, seas. That speaks volumes to service members on a day-to-day basis. They want to know, is the person next to me going to be able to do their job? We're not quite sure why the White House did this. It seems like a no-win situation for them. If they do do this and they carry it through, they're going to go to court, and it looks like the DOD isn't going to be particularly receptive. If they do succeed, it's going to hurt a lot of really good people, and the optics on it are going to be horrible for the White House. We are going to work with our allies, including those in the legal community, to fight this all the way down. This is detrimental, and there's no rational basis for it. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrosi coming to you from Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and also co-host another Legal Talk Network program called Law Technology Now, along with Monica Bay. And I'm Craig Williams coming to you from a sunny and humid Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. But Bob, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Clio and Latera. Clio's cloud-based practice management software makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. You can try it for free at Clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. And Latera, Latera is the authority on document creation, collaboration, and control. Increase your productivity, collaborate securely, and ensure protection of your vital information. You can learn more at www.latera.com. That's L-I-T-E-R-A.com. Bob? Well, Craig, I will say this for President Trump. He's been giving us plenty of topics to talk about on this show. Uh, In one of the latest developments from the Trump administration, in a series of tweets on July 26, President Trump announced that, quote, after consultation with my generals and military experts, please be advised that the United States government will not accept or allow transgender individuals to serve in any capacity in the U.S. military, end quote. He then added, quote, our military must be focused on decisive and overwhelming victory and cannot be burdened with the tremendous medical costs and disruption that transgender in the military would entail, end quote. And transgender service members have been allowed to openly serve since 2016 when former Defense Secretary Ash Carter ended that ban. Under the Department of Defense policy, transgender troops can receive medical care and change their gender identity. According to a RAND Corporation study, it's estimated that there are between 1,320 and 6,630 transgender personnel serving in the active component, and more than 800 and just over 4,000 in the selected reserve. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to look at President Trump's announcement, reaction from uh, the military, from the transgender community and others, and uh, some of the legal issues that this raises. To do that, Bob, we've got a great lineup today. Our first guest is attorney Chris Poppy from the Richardson Law Firm. Chris joined the Richardson Firm in 2016 after nearly 35 years of military service, including more than 20 years as an Army Judge Advocate General. 
Chris served as an NCO in the U.S. Marine Corps and an Army infantry officer before becoming an attorney. As an active duty judge advocate, Chris built a service-wide reputation for his courtroom skill and criminal law expertise and was the go-to trial defense counsel for high-profile and complex cases. Among those cases, Chris represented a transgender service member after it was discovered she was formerly a man. Welcome to the show, Chris Poppy. Thank you for having me. Also joining us today is Bryn Tannehill. Bryn is Director of Advocacy and a founding member of the LGBT military organization SPARTA, which stands for Service Members, Partners, and Allies for Respect and Tolerance for All. Bryn is a retired U.S. Navy pilot who uh, graduated from the Naval Academy and earned her Navy wings in 1999, flying helicopters and maritime patrol aircraft during three deployments. In 2010, she left the Naval Reserve to transition to a woman. She currently serves as a senior research scientist and uh, project manager in the private sector. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Bryn Tannehill. Thanks for having me on, Bob. Thanks for joining us. Well, let's turn to President Trump's announcement. Chris, give us a background on what's happened so far and what we can expect to happen now that this announcement's come out. Is this really through formal channels? Well, this was a, a very much a surprise announcement uh, by all indications. The, uh, of course, the Department of Defense had been well on their way towards an implementation of a broader base policy to uh, address the transitioning of members, service members, uh, in their uh, sexual uh, assignment and their gender preferences. And so that was well on its way, although there had been a delay uh, instituted by General Mattis. When the tweet came out, uh, the uh, reaction was surprising in that while uh, President Trump said that he had consulted his generals and military experts, it was clear soon afterwards that the Secretary of Defense, General Mattis, uh, as well as the uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, didn't have a a clear understanding that this was coming out and, in fact, were, were blindsided by some reports. And so that was a an obvious thing right off the bat. Today, as a matter of fact, the reaction that has come from some of the military leaders is uh, kind of startling at, at, and in some sense. For example, today the commandant of the Coast Guard, it's reported uh, that the Coast Guard had taken steps to personally contact all of the identified transgender members that were actively serving in the Coast Guard to inform them that they would not break faith with them, that they were supporting them. And so that is a, a really a strong statement that the policy announcement by uh, President Trump really caught the military by surprise. It wasn't expected. Brent Tannehill, let me ask you, what was the uh, reaction of your organization, Sparta, and of the transgender community more broadly? So we've been shocked by this. Just to set the timeline straight, in 2015, Ash Carter directed that transgender service members stop being discharged. So we've had people serving openly for two years now. Um, In 2016, we had the policy go into effect, which allowed people who were already in the service to continue serving and to receive medical treatment and change their gender markers in DEERS, that's the defense personnel system, and the medical system. The only part of the policy that hasn't been implemented is the accession policy, which lets people join the military. That was delayed by six months by SECDEF Mattis, but there is a plans that are coming along through the DOD right now that we know of for sure. 
it caught us off guard because what is in the tweets is just categorically untrue. The, our generals were not consulted. The DOD was not consulted. SecDef Mattis was on vacation. This is not costly. Rand found it not to be costly. They found it not to be disruptive. Uh, the idea that this is somehow detracting from war fighting efforts is patently false when we have transgender service members who are part of Sparta downrange in Afghanistan and Iraq right now who have transitioned and are receiving medical care. Uh, and there hasn't been any issue with that either. We have centers of excellence for the branches set up on both the East and West Coasts uh, specializing in transgender medical care. Bryn, you mentioned that Rand has looked at this. What, what specifically has Rand studied and what is it reported? So Rand looked at two facets of this, one of which was how much is this going to cost? The other facet is, is this going to be disruptive? In the case of costs, they looked at it, they found that somewhere between like $2.4 and $8.2 million per year. Uh, when you look at the total DOD budget for medical care, works out to about $6.8 billion, I think. It's essentially decimal dust in the defense budget. Uh, we spend something like 10 times more on erectile dysfunction drugs than we do on transgender medical care. The other piece that Rand looked at was, historically, has this had any kind of effect on foreign militaries that have implemented open transgender service? And the answer was no. There was no noticeable disruption to unit morale, cohesion, or readiness by allowing transgender troops to serve in foreign militaries. And that the expected was, and given that there's 18 of them, and that there's been a couple of studies out there on this, while the data is a little bit limited, there is no expected disruption. And given that the success of the implementation of the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, we would expect similar here in the United States. Chris, how's the rank and file accepting this? Uh, first of all, how's it accepting transgender service in the military? And then what's the basic reaction uh, among enlisted folks about Trump's new instruction? To the second part, I, I really can't tell that there's been any, any reaction, at least it's, uh, I'm, I'm located uh, next to and provide counsel to soldiers that are assigned to the uh, nation's largest military base. And, of course, there's just no reaction uh, from the, the rank and file. Uh, it's obviously being discussed, but no real uh, concerns uh, have been raised about accepting transgender service members into the ranks. That just simply has not been an issue in any capacity that I've seen uh, or, or had uh, explained to me by any uh, members that, that I've talked with. With regards to the actual uh, commands and how they've implemented it, there was specific guidance, and I'm most familiar with the Army process, there was specific guidance given by the Secretary of the Army last fall, I believe in October, that laid out the plan for how to implement the Secretary of Defense's new policy or the policy that was announced. And, and there was, of course, there's going to be adjustments and some sort of changes that come along with any change in policy, but nothing that was raised that was uh, of a real concern. And in part, I think that was because there had been, we are so near in time to the 2011 uh, rescission of the don't ask, don't sell policy and legislation. And that in and of itself provided a template for this change and for adopting 
this policy change that uh, allowed service members that had been serving to continue to serve, to continue to do what they were already doing. And, and that part of it became, uh, it, it made it a lot easier, I think, for members, uh, today's service members, to accept it as well as to deal with the change. Another thing that was beneficial that you didn't mention is not just the fact that we repealed Don't Ask, Don't Tell, but the fact that Canada has had a policy since 1993, and the UK learned from the mistakes of Canada and came out with a better, more detailed policy in 1999, which they continually updated, and Australia did the same in 2010. So when Sparta started producing policy analysis and recommendations to the Pentagon, you can find it online at our website. We had the benefit of being able to draft a policy that was comprehensive, that looked across multiple militaries, that looked across multiple military-like organizations across the U.S. intelligence community to provide the DOD with very specific guidance on how to produce a detailed set of policies and instructions to doctors, commanders, and chain of command, and to service members themselves on how to handle a transition. So by the time the actual policy came out, it was very well thought out. It was very well vetted through historical examples of similar militaries doing similar things. So I understand this policy uh, that has not taken effect yet. Uh, and uh, Only the accessions part. Were Only to the take effect part. today. The, 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 everything except the accessions part of the policy is in place already. That, that's correct. Yeah. Explain that to me. I'm not sure I understand what that means. So right now... Service members who are transgender and are already in the service can continue to serve. They can get medical care. They can change their gender markers in personnel records and in their medical records. However, people who are transgender who are not service members cannot join as of yet. There needs to be a policy put in place for joining, which is referred to as the accessions policy. Okay. So for for those who are currently members of the military and who are transitioning perhaps if what Trump announced in his tweet was to take effect, what rights or remedies would those people have? Well, it's it's unclear. Right now, they would be protected because there's been no policy change. It's just been an announcement. But if there's a policy change, it's unclear as to how far the policy change would be directed. Is it directed only towards those accession issues? Is it directed only towards the provision of medical expenses uh, that is targeted towards the transition process and treatment, uh, either before and after? Uh, Is it directed towards the actual strongest language in the tweet, which says that uh, members will not be allowed to serve in any capacity, meaning are there existing transgender members that are currently serving currently qualified, meeting all of the requirements of their job and service, uh, would they be uh, thrown out, uh, attempted to be administratively separated? And so you have a, a wide variety of things that are of concern there. If you go towards the most drastic interpretation of, the, uh, of President Trump's policy announcement, is to say that transgender people who are currently serving would be forced out. There would certainly be uh, litigation uh, to uh, attack that and to seek for remedies for those service members. First of all, there would be administrative remedies pursuant to whatever policies were developed and then 
encapsulated in regulations, either Department of Defense and service regulations. But the next thing would be to, to go to federal court because of the fact that they are currently serving, currently serving well, currently fulfilling their, their uh, uh, obligations, currently doing all of the things that you would expect service members to do. And the only thing that would be about them that would force them out would be the fact that they identify uh, as transgender or to identify as their current gender preference. And so that would raise equal protection uh, issues as well as as, as other constitutionally protected uh, rights. Chris, given your earlier response about the uh, acceptance of transgender in the military, what's your sense of Trump's tweet that justifies this change based on the, quote, tremendous medical costs and disruption that transgender in the military would entail? I mean, we're we're talking less than 10,000 people. Yes, and I agree with Bryn. The facts simply do not back that up, either on the sense of the that it's a high medical cost or a disproportional medical cost, or that it's a disruption, especially in this case. This, this is arising after there has been a significant policy change and after a long deliberative process in which a lot of expertise and military uh, leadership was devoted towards developing a policy to make sure that transgender uh, citizens and service members could continue to serve, could be a part of the military if they chose to do so. To go back and say now that that was not, you know, acceptable uh, for for some new reason is simply disingenuous. I mean, it just simply the facts aren't there to support that kind of conclusion. So there's been a big joke about the cost of Viagra for the military. That's significantly right. more than the cost of transgender, and some comparisons with Trump's travel budget. What type of uh, reaction has the military had to this apparent incongruous statement with respect to the, the amount of support that it has? Well, and of course, the ones who speak right up front are the leadership. And I, I think it speaks volumes where the commandant of the Coast Guard comes out and says uh, to the transgender members, we will not break faith with you. In the light of the commander-in-chief's uh, policy statement by tweet, where a Coast Guard commandant comes out and says that, to me, that speaks volumes of the change that has occurred in the leadership and, of course, leadership, the attitudes of the military flow downward. If the leadership is behind a policy and it appears as if there was a buy-in to this policy change that was announced by uh, former Secretary uh, of Defense, Ash Carter, and that the policies were changed, they were developed, and that there was buy-in. That, to me, tells me that it is likely that there is fairly broad support or fairly broad recognition that transgender service members are like other service members. Uh, They're doing their job. They're qualified to do what they're going to do. They are in place and serving in in difficult and dangerous capacity, both here and deployed across the uh, uh, seas. That speaks volumes to service members on a day-to-day basis. They want to know, is the person next to me going to be able to do their job? And that's the 99% of the equation is, are they going to do the job? And here, uh, transgender members have proven that they can do the job. We're going to continue this discussion in just a moment, but first we need to take a break to hear a message from our sponsors. Stay with us. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice from intake to invoice. 
try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up at their website, clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com with the code L2L10. That's L2L, the number 10. Documents are the currency of business. They represent you in every business interaction. Executives need to know what changes have occurred in documents, what metadata risks exist, and how to encrypt, share, and collaborate securely. Patera simplifies the document creation and collaboration process to protect you from risk and loss of reputation. Patera offers better solutions for document lifecycle management so you can focus on doing what really matters www.latera.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi, and joining uh, my co-host, Jay Craig Williams, and I today are attorney Chris Poppy from the Richardson Law Firm and Bryn Tannehill, director of advocacy and a founding member of the military organization, Sparta. Bryn, what, if anything, is your organization doing around this issue? Are you uh, preparing for the worst? Are you organizing a a response? Are you counseling uh, members of the military? We're doing all of the above, and we are preparing uh, in conjunction with other organizations. As the other guest mentioned, there are going to be legal challenges to this. And he mentioned the legal challenges if you start kicking people out, but there will be legal challenges simply if you cut off somebody's access to health care, and you start running into, I think, some equal protection claims. For example, if you can give an estrogen tablet to a cisgender, i.e. non-transgender woman in the service, and that's okay, but you can't give that same tablet to a transgender woman for hormone replacement therapy, same treatment, same pill, but one person gets it and the other person doesn't because of a class distinction, that starts running into some pretty funny things there. The, the other thing is, is that there's a kind of a key point that might have been missed there is that there is support within the Department of Defense for this policy, but there's a little bit deeper game here too, is that there's something called the military deference doctrine, which essentially courts and usually the White House defer to the military on decisions of personnel as related to the military. That's why the uh, Obama administration never issued an executive order on don't ask, don't tell, or on transgender service members. So when the White House steps in and tries to do this while Secretary of Defense Mattis is on vacation, no heads up, this is the White House coming in and trying to take some authority away from the DOD as it pertains to personnel. And the DOD is not going to want to cede this power or give that precedent to the executive branch. So there's going to be pushback on that level too, but that isn't going to be talked about directly. But he's the commander-in-chief. I mean, ultimately, doesn't he have the authority to do this if he wants to do it? Maybe. This may or may not be constitutional. Like we've talked about, there may be equal protection claims here. There might be due process claims here. And people within the military do not have to execute illegal or unclear orders. There is actually, and I'll defer to our guest to talk about UCMJ, but requesting clarification on an order which is not time critical is legal, which is exactly what the DOD and the Joint Chiefs of Staff has done. You know, Chris, historically, Congress has resisted getting involved in the day-to-day operations of the military, leaving it to the commander-in-chief and, and the uh, military brass. But do you think that, that Congress might step in on this one and straighten it out? 
Well, there certainly seems to have been a uh, strong reaction by some on both sides of the aisle uh, with regard, well, clearly uh, Democratic response has been strong, and then quite a few Republicans have spoken out against these tweets as well and this policy change. So I think that there'll be some there. It, it, the question is, if President Trump actually puts forward a directive to the Secretary of Defense to alter the the existing policy uh, and to take that huge step backwards, uh, will Congress, in a veto-proof way, go forward uh, and get legislation that would uh, override the policy? That, that's a, to, to me, with the Republican controlling both sides of Congress, uh, that that's it's an unknown thing to me. So I, I wouldn't speculate on that. But, uh, but clearly, President Trump can direct the Secretary of Defense uh, to change the policy as the Commander-in-Chief. However, that does have to be uh, in accordance with uh, current law uh, and, of course, the constitutional backstops of equal protection and, and some other potential claims under the First Amendment and or the freedom of expression, uh, possibly, or uh, due process claims for uh, dealing with rights of privacy in all of these aspects that we're talking about uh, as far as uh, transgender members and their roles and their abilities and their ability to serve uh, that come into play. So those will clearly be challenged. I think I even saw an argument put forward of a kind of a detrimental reliance uh, argument that if uh, members of the military came out as transitioning uh, in reliance on the policy, right. that they would then have some legal claim to continue serving in the military based on, on their reliance on that. Is there anything to an argument such as that, Chris? Yes, and I think that comes up to a certain point, but I agree with Bryn that the, the place that it most impacts uh, would be the way that courts afford deference to military decision-making, because that deference has generally been given, and the justification for deference to military decision-makers is the fact that it's a deliberative process dealing with an expertise in their own field, especially dealing with national security issues. Where here you don't have that. Here you've got a the military has, over the course of years, changed and developed policy that they put in place that they said was a benefit to military readiness because it gets qualified transgender members serving in the military. And so when you take a step back away from that or you challenge that, then all of a sudden the court, it would seem to me, would look at it and say, well, wait a minute, why should we give you deference when you are overriding all of this expertise uh, that had made this decision in the first place. So I think it, it might go back to that uh, even stronger. With regards to an individual member, that would clearly say that uh, that is a compelling argument. It's just is not as as direct that, that there's a detrimental reliance, but it's not as as strong, in my view, as, as potential weak protection arguments, which have been recognized in some courts around the country that uh, transgender rights are certainly protected under equal protection arguments. Chris, I want to ask a related question about the substance of a tweet, or rather the effect of a tweet, and in the chain of command. Some of the generals have reacted to Trump's tweet to say, I get my instructions through this person and not through the president. Is a presidential tweet an order in the chain of command? And what would happen, for example, if he said, attack North Korea in a tweet? Well, that's a uh, interesting question. The uh, and clearly, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff defined it and said that look, that we're we're treating this as a 
announcement, but we're not treating it as a direction or an order from the commander-in-chief. Now, the commander-in-chief, there's no particular, the the laws do not require uh, that the commander-in-chief give an order in any particular way. Uh, And so if he clearly came out and said, I am today ordering the Secretary of Defense to eliminate the policy uh, and that transgender and to implement a policy that would force transgender uh, service members out of the service, uh, then you would have a a much closer call as to what effect of law does that have. If you then have the commandant of the Coast Guard saying, sorry, I'm not going to go along with that, that's insubordination, right? Yeah, the, the uh, you know that would be a failure to follow a lawful order, and, and of course the the Uniform Code of Military Justice makes clear that uh, service members who fail to follow orders do so at their own detriment. So you can question whether a law is lawful or not, but you bear full responsibility as an individual service member uh, to that that would might question it or, or not obey an order. You bear full responsibility if you're wrong. It's risky. Well, we just about reached the end of our program, and it's time to wrap up and get your final thoughts. So, Brain, let's turn to you and uh, let you wrap up, get your final thoughts, as well as your contact information for our listeners. So, we're not quite sure why the White House did this. It seems like a no-win situation for them. If they do do this and they carry it through, they're going to go to court, and it looks like the DOD isn't going to be particularly receptive. Um, If they do succeed, it's going to hurt a lot of really good people, and the optics on it are going to be horrible for the White House. We are going to work with our allies, including those in the legal community, to fight this um, all the way down. This is detrimental, and there's no rational basis for it. So you can reach out to me via Twitter at Bryn Tannehill, and that's all just one word, my first name and last name. Or you can reach out to me on Facebook or via the Sparta Facebook page. And Chris, let's turn to you. Let's get your final thoughts as well as your contact information so our listeners can reach out to you if they'd like. Yes. Well, when I first, yes, there's so many uh, service members and former service members, when you first heard about this tweet, you recognize it as a huge step backwards. Uh, we have progressed from a point in which we did not recognize the talents and abilities of transgender persons and their what they could contribute to the military and in the defense of our nation. And we had progressed to a point where there was going to be full integration uh, very soon with uh, those members serving in capacities that ran the full gamut of service. It was disturbing that we have taken a such a step backwards by our commander-in-chief especially in the manner in which it was done, which seems to have been done for reasons unrelated to military readiness uh, that have been perhaps done for some other political purposes. But it's unclear to me that that is going to succeed. Uh, It is encouraging that the military leadership have stepped up and resisted this as being a change and that uh, members of both sides of the aisle in Congress have condemned it and, in fact, said that, look, these are service members. They're like any other service members. As long as they're qualified and doing a job, they should be allowed to continue to serve because that's the bottom line. They are there to help defend our nation, and they're doing a good job at it. I can be reached. Uh, my uh, email address is chris, K-R-I-S dot poppy, P-O-P-P-E, at com. 
Great. And thank you so much for being with us today. That brings us to the end of our show. I'm Craig Williams with my co-host, Bob Ambrosi. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.